This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 4th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The Federal Reserve's assessment of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank is out. So who is to blame in the Fed's telling? Cato's Norbert Michelle explains and offers some advice for policymakers seeking to reassure depositors while making the banking sector more robust. Michael Barr is the Federal Reserve Vice Chair of Supervision. Uh, he recently issued a report on the failure of SVB, the sort of high-profile Silicon Valley bank uh, that has since been, is it resolved? Is that the right word? We, we can go with resolved. Yeah, it's uh, okay. It's uh, been wrapped uh, up, dissolved, <laughs> dissolved, definitely yeah. uh, resolved, uh, quite possibly. Uh, so the Federal Reserve essentially blames the failure on management and inadequate supervision. And Barr himself has called for uh, more uh, more supervision, I guess, m- potentially more regulation of a broader set of banks. Um, what do you basically, b- based on what you know of this report, what are your takeaways? Well, I think it's positive in the sense that he didn't simply blame uh, any kind of red herring and didn't just put all the blame off onto the private sector, onto the banks. Um, he is pretty open or the report, I should say the report's pretty open, uh, in terms of saying, Hey, look, regulators screwed up here. You know, that's, I'm paraphrasing, but, but they did, uh, the report does admit that it doesn't go as far as I would like it, 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 it refers to certain failures that they had and says, well, we don't really know why. We can't really tell why. It's hard to say why. <laughs> and, th- you know, that I find baffling. The Fed's regulated SVB for over, more than 20 years. Um, so, you know, whatever happened during the Trump administration, and they do kind of, the report does kind of put some of the blame there uh, on the rollback, quote unquote, rollback of some of the Dodd-Frank stuff, um, which I don't agree with. But that notwithstanding, they were the regulator for more than 20 years. The Trump administration was only a full four years and they didn't have full control over the Fed. They were just, they just had one or two appointments to the Fed. And it, it's kind of, in my opinion, I won't say disingenuous, but it's a little sketchy uh, to go that route, but they don't go too far. So I'll, I'll give them that. Um, but as you know, Caleb, in D.C., bureaucracies, every single federal bureaucracy around here is much larger than one or two people. There's enough in this report for certain entrepreneurial uh, members of the U.S. Senate and House to point to the broader private sector, the broader banking industry, and say, this is clearly the clearly the problem is uh for lack of a better term greed oh yeah and they will and liz warren's gonna do that no matter what so you're you're gonna get some of that uh especially from the dodd frank stuff they have some things in this report that talk about the banks svbs focus on short-term profits uh which you know to me it's like well oh wow that's that's a shocker uh, <laughs> they were focused on profits in the short term. Go figure. Um, you know that, but there's no possible way a bank can operate without 
interacting with its regulator and without checking an enormous number of regulatory boxes. And the report documents that. Um, it, it shows all of the regulatory issues that are there. And you know you have uh, clear evidence, clear admission of the Fed saying, yeah, look, we had problems here. This bank had more outstanding supervisory actions than any bank in its peer group, three times more. Um, and for whatever reason, and we're not really sure why, we didn't do anything about it. So to the extent that that this bank had a great deal of uh, outstanding issues, that it was outstanding in a sense that uh, it was uh, well above other banks uh, in terms of identify problems that the Fed itself had identified. Uh, I mean, it, I, if it's fair to say that, I think you would say, well, depositors at the institution, when made aware of these problems, which I have only to assume most of the depositors were unaware of most of these problems, um, you know, how do we get that feedback mechanism to include depositors, to include owners? Well, supposedly in the report, the report says that the board didn't even have a full understanding, um, which, you know, I, there's some gray stuff in here, but, uh, the chief risk officer, they got rid of the chief risk officer and then they took over a year to try to get a new one. And the, the report kind of put some of the blame there saying, you know, they're like that, that, that transition, that problem recognition and then the transition to try to find a new one took too long and was kind of unclear what was going on or why they didn't get a new one. And maybe that's why the board didn't know. I've got a hard time believing that. Um, you know, the, the typical depositor, on the other hand, is going to be kept in the dark. A lot of this stuff is confidential. So, um, you know, unless that stuff is made public, uh, the, the typical depositor is never going to know about this kind of thing. And I think you'd have a good case to make for shifting to a, a framework where you do make that stuff public. Um, because right now the notion is you have to protect financial stability for the whole system. And I actually think that's a bad goal. I actually think that that does more harm than good. So, um, you know, I think that the, the bank, it, you should put more focus on the bank having to prove to everybody on a regular basis how good it is. Um, and if there's a problem, then it needs to be brought out right away. You know, it needs to be public. When you talk about the goal of promoting stability across the entire uh, banking sector, uh, what are the incentives that that creates for regulators, for and for banks themselves, that it, that is the expectation of bailouts is it exists, it's out there. Um, but at the same time, regulators in that in pursuit of that goal, well, how do they react if they know that that is the goal? Well, you nailed the question. I mean, that's that's really the heart of the problem, right? If if the whole goal is to is to keep everything stable then there's there's an incentive to provide bailouts. There's an incentive to provide government backing. And then there's an incentive to be really deliberate, slow, and sort of uh, deferential to, uh, we can fix this. We just keep going and we can just fix this. And the last thing we want to do is anything that would cause a big problem and cause a lot of attention to the bank and cause customers to run and cause people to freak out. 
So the incentive is to keep everything hidden, gloss over it. Uh, one term that you'll hear in sort of in the business is uh, regulatory uh, deference, <laughs> or um, and that's not good. You know that that's that's the opposite of what you want in terms of the incentives uh, for the bank to operate more soundly and in a in a more in a, in a less fragile way. It, it reminds me a bit. Uh, I've John Allison and I've have talked about this of being brought into a room to sit down with Barack Obama and uh, being told you must accept this giant pile of money. Um, and you know, to hear John Allison tell it, this was meant to protect banks that were not doing very well. That's right. That that was the tarp uh, the tarp episode, and the the theory there was if we let everybody see that only certain banks get all this money, then they're gonna that's going to identify the ones that are in trouble, and that's going to make everything worse because everybody's going to leave those, and <laughs> so everybody was forced to take money, even the ones that said they didn't need it, even the ones that were safe and sound, um, you know, and uh, like nobody nobody wins in that scenario. Are there specific recommendations that uh, the Fed Vice Chair Michael Barr makes that you have a problem with, or that um, uh, you find you think are especially good? No, <laughs> no, on the, neither, neither really. I mean, I, I, I do have. I mean, in the sense that most of what he's saying is sort of hedged and kind of recommending a holistic review and and that kind of thing okay, like that's fine, whatever. Um, that's not really any kind of earth shattering thing. Um, I don't know that anybody expected them to come out with any really crisp set of regulate of, of, uh, recommendations though. They do, they do move a little bit too close for my taste to, yeah, we need to, we need to fix that regulatory rollback we had in 2018. Um, and I just, I just, I'm just not there. I'm, I'm, I completely disagree with that idea. I have a blog post coming out on this in the next couple of days. One of the one of the clearest pieces of that story is that had they not done the 2018 law, SVB would have been subject to a higher and more frequent liquidity coverage ratio regime. And I I, I just I think two things are wrong with that. One, we're doing this in hindsight, um, and you know, had that had that happened, they would have been able to adjust what they were doing. I'll get back right back to that in one minute. But aside from that, if you look at that ratio, um, even it's even in the Fed's report at the beginning of 2022, um, they would have met the higher ratio, and that's according to the Fed. And there are other estimates that suggest that, that I've seen that suggest that they would have met it uh, all the way through 2022. Now, there's a question there, though. And one of the reasons that there's a question there is because that's based partly on a projection of what your expected cash flow is. So you've got to make an estimate. Now, you're gonna are you gonna hit that most of the time if you're a bank? Probably so. If you're a really strange, unique bank like SVB, you're might you be more likely to miss. And we already know that they had an unprecedented outflow. So th there would have been no reason for any regulator or anybody to say your liquidity coverage ratio needs to be able to handle $40 billion withdrawal in one day. That wasn't going to happen. Like nobody was going to do that. So that it just wouldn't have helped. Now, the other piece of that 
is that the other major component is called, it's called high quality liquid assets. There are two of the biggest sets of those that and they are, they're, they're kind of tiered. One is treasuries. One is uh, mortgage-backed securities that are issued by the GSEs. SVB had a lot of those. And the interest rate risk caused them to reprice those when they sold them and, and take a loss. So arguably, they would have been able to shift more to treasuries. Well, the, the bank that just failed now, that uh, since we set this up, First Republic, guess what, they, guess what happened to them? they had to sell a bunch of treasuries <laughs> so the the interest rate risk would have been you know pretty much the same on any long-term bonds so whether they were in long-term treasuries or whether they were in long-term uh, mortgage-backed securities you had a similar problem so it's just not it's just not okay it's not it's not i don't want to use the word fair it's just not legitimate to go back in hindsight and say oh no if we had done x y and z instead we know that th that would have been fine because it, it just doesn't, it doesn't hold up to a very close scrutiny. One of the points that you like to make and that I think ought to be very well taken uh, generally is that we want people to be, to have an appropriate level of skepticism toward the quality of the institutions in which they have their money. And in the banking sector, pretty much different from like equity markets, you're it is almost you are almost expected not to have that kind of skepticism. That's right, and 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 we're dealing with the consequences more so through the years uh, as we as we cover more and more deposits, uh, larger and larger accounts. We give more and more people uh, an incentive to not care about what the heck's going on in the bank, and you know you don't have to be a financial analyst to to do to figure out these things. And if it wasn't the case that we were doing this, the bank would have a larger incentive to show you everybody in a nice and simple way, you know, what they're doing and to actually be careful <laughs> because they don't, they're not going to go and, and do something and lie about it because then that opens them up to fraud. I'm not saying nobody would commit fraud, but that's, but that's a, that's another incentive there. So we've taken all that out of uh, taking all that away. Yeah. And the, the appearance of looking like you might not be doing something that is either smart yeah. or, uh, ethical, uh, is good enough for a lot of depositors to say, well, I'm out of here. That's right. No, that's exactly right. And you see it now. That's what's going on with these largest, with most of these largest failures, because who's, who are the ones who are moving their money? It's the large uninsured people, right? And like, there's this is this is widely known among financial analysts and and economists and uh, monetary economists. Those are the unstable deposits. Why are they unstable? Because they pay attention to what the hell's going on, and the first sign of trouble, they get out. And if everybody was looking at the system that way, you'd have a better set of incentives on the public side, and you'd have a better set of incentives on the banking side. And no, nothing would be perfect, but nothing's perfect. So like, that's not the point. The point is you would make people be more careful and that's what you want. Norbert Michel is a Cato Institute vice president and director of the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.